and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Anna. And today we have Kimberly. Welcome to the show. Hello. It's uh, very exciting to have you join us. So you are currently at the University of Cambridge. Can you tell us a little bit about your research? Yes, absolutely. So officially, I am in the Department of Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic, and my thesis is on advice giving in medieval Iceland. Or, as I like to tell people who are a little less into that sort of Nordic side of things, I study Vikings. Viking advice. Advice kings. Yes. Advicelandic advice kings. (laughs) You could call it that. I'm sorry. So what kind of form did this advice giving take? What records do we have of advice? So basically, what we have is we have the family sagas or the sagas of the Icelanders, which is this kind of medieval, let's call it a record, but they are not super historical, where basically we have Icelanders in slightly later centuries, think the 13th and 14th centuries, writing about Icelanders in earlier centuries, so think sort of the 11th century. This earlier century is, we kind of call the saga age Iceland. And what they do is they they try and write what they think happened back then. And some things they kind of know through sort of ancestral memory, what was passed on down to them. Um, And some things seem a little less historical, you know. There's an awful lot of dragons and ghosts, considering that these are supposed to be about their very own ancestors. So that is, in a nutshell, the family sagas. I look at those um, and I try and work out what is probably literary and what is probably historical. And what kind of advice they gave. Yeah, exactly. What kind of advice do they think is realistic that these people in the earlier centuries would have been giving to each other? So some fantastic sort of things there would be that I've kind of discovered. Something that will come as no surprise to anyone, that younger men tend to receive a lot of advice. Do they tend to listen to a lot of this advice? No. Which I'm sure will will come as a great surprise to everyone when I finally publish my research. Does this fall into categories of advice that we might see today? Is there sort of like life advice and love advice or is it less familiar? Oh, absolutely. We have some really typical kind of advice. Like you have advice a sort of of young men going to say their uncles and being like, oh, there's this really cute girl and I don't know how to approach her. What should I do? And the uncle's like, I got your back. And I will set up a meeting and you you, you young kids, you, you can meet up and, and maybe there's be a marriage in the works. And you get this kind of familiar sort of love advice and that sort of thing. You get familiar advice as well. Sort of someone who's a, kind of a, a guest in a foreign country will go to their host and be like, where's good to visit? And, you know, you expect that kind of advice. And then you get this kind of uniquely sort of Scandinavian medieval settler kind of advice, which is sort of like, so I want to ambush my enemies for whom I've had many a blood feud with. (laughs) Where is the best hill in order to attack them from? (laughs) Which is not really, it's not very comparable to the kind of advice that we're giving out today, or at least I hope not. And you mentioned that at least some of the young men in these sagas aren't taking the advice. I'd say like the stereotype about advice is that it's much easier to give than to take, but are a lot of these advices put into practice in the family sagas? 
Well, actually, most advice is listened to. Most advice is taken. When the advice isn't, that's kind of sometimes that's a signal that something plot related is about to happen. For example, the author is showing off that this is the road un. Trodden, you know. This is what a sensible person would have done if they'd taken this good advice, and they haven't, and therefore they're going to do the unsensible thing, and things are going to go wrong. And sometimes it's more about who is giving the advice. Is the advice ignored because the two people have like a bad relationship or something like that? So you know, there's lots of reasons why you might not want to take advice. But going back to the younger men thing, I do think it's very interesting that you've got a lot of young men who are trying to assert themselves in the world. They're not. High on the family hierarchy, you know. Usually, you know, there's a patriarch in the family, the father figure, who's giving out all this advice, and you know, they, they almost seem to act out that they want to, they want to be the one who's asked for advice, and you know, they they're very offended when someone doesn't ask for their advice. They're a bit more resistant to taking other people's advice. So you have a lot of those kind of hierarchical family interpolitics going on. So. You talk about this relationship between men, but do women feature in it? Oh, fantastic question! Absolutely, women do feature as advice givers in the sagas. Curiously, hardly anyone gives women advice. Just a few instances of that, but women they they tend to give an awful lot of advice, and they tend to in a lot of sagas to oversimplify a little bit here. They give really really good advice, the the kind of advice that's sort of like that bull is def- clearly possessed by a demon. Do not let the bull live until it grows up. You know, kill the demonic bull, please. And then the man obviously doesn't listen to this advice, and the bull grows up, and it's a demonic bull, and it kills him. And there's just this kind of, especially with older women, there's just this kind of almost self-awareness among the saga authors of young men not following the advice of older women, but they should have. You know, listen to grandma. That's very interesting. Does that kind of speak to the the nature of the family sagas in that they are partly oral tradition and to do with the sort of passing down of knowledge from elder generations to younger ones? I think that that risks conflating storytelling a little bit with you know advice in the sense of you know practical actionable advice that you should be taking right now you know whether solicited or not i could not tell you not being someone who looks extensively into oral tradition whether stories are mostly being passed down through men or through women i'm afraid I was thinking particularly about the age thing, like that stories are at least usually passed down generationally, mm-hmm. uh, whether they're by men or by women. Can I ask, and I apologise for my ignorance, what language are you reading the sagas in? So the language is Old Norse, which is, you know, it, it's kind of the language that's most associated with the Vikings, with the medieval Scandinavians. We are talking about sagas that are set in medieval Iceland. One really interesting thing about Old Norse is that modern Icelanders can pretty much read the sagas with no problem at all. That's how little Old Norse has changed between then and modern Icelandic. They are mutually intelligible, basically, apart from obviously the additions that modern Icelandic has for words such as television and radio and <laughs> that sort of thing. There has been a lot of spelling shifts and that sort of thing, but uh, modern Icelanders basically speaking Old Norse. So when you went to Iceland, were you able to 
understand people speaking? Unfortunately not. Old Norse, of course, is exclusively a written language. We don't really know how it sounds. And I was very, very proud of myself when I'd get on a bus in Iceland and I'd be able to understand like the odd phrase because I'd worked out what it would look like if it was written down. But for the most part, the answer is no, not really. (laughs) So how did you become interested in the subject of giving advice in these sagas? I guess the answer is partly extremely typical for research. I noticed there was a gap in the scholarship. Basically, I was doing my master's on law in the medieval family sagas, specifically the sagas. I wasn't even looking at history at this point. And the way that legal procedures were kind of portrayed. I had this question. I really wanted to know something about someone giving legal advice. I went to look it up. No one had ever written about advice that I could find. I looked quite extensively and I could just see that, oh my god, no one writes about advice giving. In the sagas, in this period of history, it's completely absent from scholarship. So that kind of sets off an idea. The second reason that I really got into it is because of, um, what's the word? Spite, I guess. Yes, basically, in my uh, master's year, I was doing all these legal procedures and uh, family sagas, researching them. I submitted my dissertation. The person, I will let them go unnamed, but the person who gave me feedback on that thesis, not my supervisor, but someone who marked it, said that it seemed like I was cherry-picking evidence in some places. And I thought to myself, well that's just not going to happen anymore. I'm going to make it impossible for anyone to possibly say that I am cherry-picking evidence anymore. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick a subject where I can quantify everything. I basically decided that I'm going to say that I'm going to look at advice giving, I'm going to look at it in these sagas, and I'm going to write down every single instance where advice is given or could be interpreted as being given in the sagas. And then I am going to analyse this. I'm going to make a searchable database and then analyse it. And absolutely no one can accuse me of cherry picking evidence because I will have all the evidence. No one will ever have done such a extensive database of advice giving in the family sagas ever before and probably never again. <laughs> Well, spite is an incredible motivator academically. I think, you know, there's some days when nothing else will get me working. I just think, like, I imagine someone who thought I couldn't do it and I just be like, well, I'll show them. Absolutely. And again, no, no one will ever say that I was cherry picking (laughs) evidence. We're going to go right, downright scientist on this. If you're putting together this database, I just imagine, like, using it to create a viking advice website where just like what would be viking advice for your situation i mean that does sound fantastic i, I wonder if we, if we could put together a little bit of code and then you could type in like a keyword like you know i want advice on ghosts that are haunting me and, and then and it just returns like you know typical viking advice for this would be a get a priest uh, exercise those ghosts and, and and b very important get a lawyer to prosecute the ghosts for their spooky crimes. Absolutely. If you prosecute, it's well known Viking advice in Erbigya saga that if you get ghosts, you should prosecute them. Works every time. 
you spoke about some of the sort of fantastical elements of what you're reading. And does the advice often concern uh, ghosts and dragons, or is it generally more prosaic? So most of the advice is much more prosaic. We get a lot of advice about combat, we get a lot of advice about legal procedures, we get a lot of just interpersonal family advice, you know, contact your uncle for blah 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 advice kind of thing. That being said, there is a surprisingly high amount of supernatural advice. Oh, you're being targeted by a witch, uh, this is clearly what you should do, or you know, you've had some kind of dream which implies foreboding, maybe don't go travelling today. So that that is quite common in the sagas. What we, nowadays, what we think of is, oh, that is totally made up. These people are having a laugh when they write these things in the sagas, they're just inventing things to make them more exciting. But what we really have to remember is that these supernatural happenings were were normal to the people in the saga and to the people writing the sagas even. They really did believe in these things. They weren't like funny weird parts that we think of them now today. They believed so strongly in these things then you've got to see beyond your own sort of prejudice towards these things aren't real to try and work out what might be going on sometimes. For example there's this part in one of the sagas where a woman dies and she leaves behind some really nice bedsheets and everyone wants these bedsheets but it turns out the bedsheets are haunted and whoever owns the bedsheets gets killed by her ghost. So the solution is that they burn the bedsheets. Well it has been suggested that actually the bedsheets in question are diseased. Um, she died from a disease. It's got a really logical explanation. They don't know that in that time period so they kind of invent this reason for oh, the bedsheets must be haunted to explain what is to them unexplainable. So you can't just automatically dismiss all these episodes as ahistorical or completely invented. Sometimes it's just their way of explaining what's going on in the world around them. And to be honest, incinerating disease things is quite sensible. Yes, <laughs> it's a lesson that we seem to have learned by now. Speaking of the supernatural kind of advice, I know very little about Iceland, but I do know that around this time it becomes Christian. So does the nature of advice change as it Christianizes? So alongside the family sagas, I also was looking at a bunch of other sagas which are called the Sturlunga saga, which is called the contemporary sagas. They are sagas that are written roughly around the same time as the sagas of the Icelanders, but are set in the period of the author writing them. So we have, by comparison, similar kind of period of authors, but the earlier set of sagas are all about, you know, Iceland either just before Christianization, on the cusp of Christianization, or just after Christianization. And then the later sagas, which are about a really fully Christianized Iceland, where everyone is Christian and it's just kind of a given fact. And one of the major things that you see here is that priests in the contemporary sagas become a major advice giver. And they get involved in absolutely every part of kind of daily life. And they are just totally absent from society. Before this point, you know, they almost replace certain family members that you would go to for advice. So that's really interesting, sort of seeing the rise of, of priests and sort of clergymen as advice givers. 
So uh, where are you in the process of your PhD? So I am in that part, that kind of, you know, that stage where you are just about to finish writing and hand in that area. I can't say I've experienced it myself, but I've, <laughs> I've heard of it. It's the, basically, it's that I've been writing this for too long now and I need to submit it. In that case, then you will have started sort of pre pre 2020. How has your research been affected by the last couple of years? Oh my goodness. Oh dear. It's very hard to describe how much of a shock COVID-19 has been while you are doing your research. The assumption is that it isn't going to affect you too much because you're one of those subjects where you don't need to go into a lab, you know, Sure, not being able to go to a library and access physical books is a massive inconvenience, but, you know, there's loads of sources online now. So, in theory, being forced to sit in a room and write is perfectly possible. But me, just like everyone else, I, you know, started doom scrolling and everything was very, very worrisome. All my conferences got cancelled. I wasn't able to connect with other people in my department. And research became a very isolating experience all of a sudden. And I know that I wasn't the only one who was coping poorly with it. I just, even now I get frustrated about things that I would like to do. Sort of collaborations and people that I would like to meet up with. And it's frustrating that everything has to be done on Zoom now. Yeah, uh, yeah, I can definitely agree with you on that. But you had some research travel that you were able to do before it became impossible to do so. That's right. I was so lucky that I was able to I was able to speak at conferences in both Norway and Iceland in years previous to COVID beginning. Iceland was definitely the highlight of the conferences abroad that I got to do. It was it's something that's really big in my field that's called the Saga Conference. And you can imagine from the name Saga Conference that it is the big one for people who do medieval Scandinavia. It was a fantastic a collection of people from all over the world, the top researchers in my field, and we're all just sort of staying in this area for a week, eating all our meals together, meeting everyone. It was such a fantastic experience. And actually even more touching than that, on the 15th of August, the year before, I had had a major operation, um, a thymectomy on my chest, because I have a condition called myasthenia gravis, and it left me very, very weakened, this surgery. It was extremely major. The year after, on the 15th of August, I gave my paper at the Saga conference in Iceland, and my recovery was, you know, it was really symbolic of that recovery, that I was able to be there speaking in front of all these, like, researchers I respected, and it had only been possible because of, you know, the amazing world of modern medicine. That's such a great story, because it speaks to the victories that we can still have, even when it sort of feels like victories aren't really on the table, you know, you're talking about how hopeless and difficult things can feel right now but you know a couple of years before you'd also experienced like a really big challenge and bounced back from that so it's sort of it's evidence of resilience that already exists within us if you see what I mean a great thing to know about yourself I guess that you can do it that you can go through something really big and and come right back 
I think it's also a reminder that things may seem really, really bad at the time, but you never know where you'll be in a year's time after that and how bright things will kind of look for you. I'm just thinking of places I would like to be in a year's time. I, I would like to be somewhere that's not maybe this room. <laughs> Wearing something that's not sweatpants would be good. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I, I I would like to live in something a little more fashionable than a dressing gown. While we are on this lighter note, we always ask our guests to talk about something funny that's brightened up their research, brightened up their day, and that might brighten up the day of our listeners. Oh, well. So let's let's talk about something that happened before the pandemic. <laughs> the summer before the pandemic, actually. Where basically, I am not sure if you're aware of this, but Cambridge basically gets to be the hottest place in the UK every summer. You know, it reaches this ridiculous high that, that is only ever seen in similar places like Brazil, the equator. So it's just basically the hottest place in the, in the whole country. But it also has the oldest buildings. So the amount of heat these kind of buildings keep in on a very hot day is pretty unbearable. So that means that you get pretty creative about trying to lose the heat and that sort of thing. And I basically decided one day in the middle of summer that I was not even going to attempt to work while the sun was at its zenith. That was not going to happen. And I'd heard that there was a Thai festival happening in Cambridge and I thought I'm gonna wear a nice summer dress, I'll go to the Thai festival and then when the temperature cools down then I can come home and do all my work. So what I do is I, I drag my boyfriend off, uh, we go to the Thai festival, and uh, I hear at the Thai festival, which just to give you a picture, it's this fantastic place, it's got a main stage, loads of people are selling street food, there's a Thai boxing demonstration, Thai dancing set demonstration, it looks fantastic. And I hear that there's going to be an eating competition and they're looking for contestants, right? <laughs> well, that would immediately get my attention. <laughs> oh, yes. And it's called, I'm British, get me out of here. So, you know, I have to sign up for this. <laughs> I, I go and I, I sign up for the eating competition, assuming that it's going to be a bit like, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, and they're going to give you loads of gross food, and then whoever can eat the most weird food will win. And that's not too far from what it was. I got selected as one of the contestants. There was about four of us. Got dragged to the front of this stage and the host then goes to me and says to me, like, very intently, like, are you British? They, they, they ask all the contestants, are you British? Are you definitely British? And I only twig afterwards why this question is asked. Because, full disclosure, I am British, but... I'm also half Thai. So, I mean, I don't look very Thai. I, you know, I look very, very white. But I, I, I quite truthfully say, yes, I am British. And they, they, they accept this answer and then they put us all onto stage, introduce us, and they start out doling out the strange food. And I, I suddenly, you know, as, as they give us the food and the crowd is cheering, I'm suddenly realising why they asked that question. Are, are you British? It's because the food is actually quite normal Thai food. <laughs> So the first round was something like crickets. Not live crickets, cooked. Everyth everything is cooked, everything is fine. And uh, you know, everyone eats their, their cricket, you know, the, the rest of the people. There's two other women, there's a young man. The next one is ox penis. <laughs> Delicious. 
Well, it, it was it was cold and unseasoned. Okay, <laughs> unseasoned. <laughs> I mean, I would, this might not make it into the podcast, but I've got to say that most penises I put in my mouth are cold and uns. I guess not cold. Oh, <laughs> they're at oh, least not no. unseasoned. <laughs> they are unseasoned. Oh my god. <laughs> You've got to season your penis. Oh, God. The takeaways from this podcast. Is that why it's called Not Safe for Publication? Yeah, basically. Oh, sorry, so what came after the ox penis? But everyone ate it. No one had a problem. The rest of the contestants, I'm going to guess, were were probably 100% British. But no one had a problem with that. Then came the final round where they say, this one's going to be especially gross. And I was like, oh, what is it going to be? It's going to be pig's blood in a cup. Except when they're dishing out this pig's blood, I'm like, oh, that's cooked. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is a normal soup base. (laughs) For a lot of Thai soups. Because, of course, you know, you're kind of using that pig's blood as a stock sometimes. And sometimes you get, like, a blood sausage. And blood sausage shouldn't be that gross to British people. I I do know that they eat black pudding, you know? Yeah. But all that they've been told is that it's pig's blood. (laughs) So it doesn't seem very appealing. It's in this kind of dark brown kind of cup. And once more, it's cold and unseasoned. So, you know, probably the coldness is the most unpleasant. These are cold soup, but it's it's a little bit congealed in the bottom because they were trying to make it gross, I guess. And uh, so the first the first person, that the young man, um, in, isn't able to finish his cup. Um, and then another woman isn't able to finish her cup. And then that last woman, my God, she really had it out for me. She didn't want to drink it. So she, she, she stood there pretending to sip while giving me kind of eyebrows, like, what's she going to do? <laughs> Um, and I had, which forced, I could have just won if she'd just given up. But no, I had to drink the whole unpleasant cup and then turn it upside down over my head to prove it was all gone. And then I was, uh, I, crown, I was crowned the winner of I'm British, get me out of here. I won, among other things, a trophy, a giant silver trophy that was so heavy. It was over the side, it was larger than my head. And a giant pillow that looked like a sauce bottle, as well as some sauces and things, which it was fantastic. It, I still have that giant trophy. It, it like I was gonna say, did, did they ever find out that you were uh, half Thai and so were maybe not uh, fully eligible? They didn't find out that I was half Thai, and I, 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 I you know, I realised afterwards why they wouldn't even bother investigating that because once I was home that night I'd successfully escaped the heat for a bit to go to the Thai festival I was gonna work now that it was nice and cool in the evening I discovered that I had the worst sunburn that I have ever had in my life I was so red and worst of all radiating heat oh no so, you know, right into the evening of that heat wave, I continued feeling it. Oh, I... and but no one no one would question <laughs> whether you were Thai or not. See, when you said it was Thai like f- food festival, what I imagined was they would do like really really spicy food. Yeah, that's what I was expecting. It's like more and more bird's yeah. eye chilies. <laughs> 
oh no, I don't think that I can compete with the spicy food that actually, you know, that most Thai people can eat. But yeah, I thought to myself before I entered, is this going to be spicy food? But then I realized that they might have a lawsuit on their hands if if they give food that makes someone sick. So I assumed it was just going to be weird, gross things. Yeah. Incredible story, Kimberly. Thank you. I think all that's left to say then is thank you so much for joining us for the podcast this week. It's been brilliant to get to know you and learn a little bit more about your research. That's no problem at all. I enjoy talking about my research. Anna, thank you for co-hosting. Thank you very much, Georgia. And as always, to our listeners, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast and always season your penis. Oh no! Always. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast, or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.